The Y Curve with Phil Dobby and Roger Hearing. Small concern, edge of Europe, been trading forever, lately fallen on hard times, recent boardroom battles or its stock price plummet, now under new management. So, any takers? That is pretty much the pitch for UK PLC at the moment, but the world is not exactly queuing up to invest. A good benchmark for this is M&A, mergers and acquisitions, companies being bought or sold with money from inside or outside the UK. And data this week shows that's down by as much as a third in the first quarter. But be honest, despite what the Prime Minister is telling the Americans this week, does the UK look like a good bet to you? The IMF says we're on track for the worst performance of the G7 countries in 2023. So what's going wrong? Is it all down to Brexit? Well, after all, we're a mature democracy, reliable for credit, politically pretty stable with a wealth of innovative and educated talent. What needs to change to get international capital interested in backing Britain? That's the subject of The Y Curve today. Brought to you by Wigmore Associates. The Y Curve. So that M&A number, mergers and acquisitions number, it is a, it is a bit confusing because the total number is down, but a chunk of that is because domestic mergers and acquisitions, companies within yeah. the UK buying other companies, is down. Uh, but, we've but that's got, not the whole story. No, well, $12.7 billion, uh, is the inward number. That's the, the amount in that quarter of foreign companies yeah. buying UK companies. That's actually double what it was the previous quarter. So oh. you say, well, OK, so that's pretty good. But then if you look back to Q2 2021... Uh, it wasn't $12.7 billion, It was almost $35 billion. So it's way down on where it was then. But then that was a bit of a peak. So choppy is, the, right, is choppy. basically Let's the say term. Choppy. But, but, but actually, not, it's not that bad a prospect then in, but, in well, those terms. But, it's the, but the question is, is it good or is it bad? Is it When is it good? Because it's good to have foreign money coming into the country. But is it good to have a foreign company buying an existing company, ripping the assets out of it uh, and streamlining it, making people lose jobs and then repatriating profits overseas. Well, obviously not. But the point is surely that if they come here and bring the money and employ local people and do local stuff, when, as you said from the data, British firms aren't exactly doing that, then then it has to be the best prospect, particularly at a time of really bad economic conditions otherwise. It's a question of, are they doing something new, isn't it? What's what's happening with foreign companies that are putting money in uh, to to create something that didn't exist before, and I just suspect mm. we're not seeing a lot of that. But it's, but then, then the question is, do we need that? Or if we had better credit facilities from banks, would more domestic operations be able to do that without that foreign debt? Well, it doesn't look like it at the moment. One of the problems is that we're not looking that attractive, and particularly when you look at what's happening in America. I mean, it came to to fall very much this week with, of course, Rishi Sunak there. But the Americans have their uh, interestingly named IRA, the... the Inflation Reduction Act, which is drawing huge amounts of money involved in green ventures into the US. Most, you know, vast mm. numbers of companies mm. around the world are going, hang on a second, that's where we want to be. Yeah. So when they're getting all that investment, there's, the pot is rather diminished for us. Yeah, they, I mean, that is, a, that is a really good point, because they're a big population, of course, so there's more opportunity there. And maybe they are a safer environment. And that's, that is the question, isn't it? As we're saying in the introduction, are we less safe than we used to be? Because we we are not quite as politically stable. We've been through so many prime ministers. One of them at least had crazy ideas, possibly more. Yeah, uh, I think and, many for the last hundred years, but let's not go there. <laughs> and you've got to be careful, by the way, with these numbers, because if you look at uh, the, the, the top locations for foreign direct investment, 
the number five location for foreign-owned UK businesses. Where's the money coming from? It's coming from the Cayman Islands. I suspect that might actually be people living here investing through the Cayman (laughs) Islands in companies here. And then if you look at Bermuda, Switzerland and Jersey, they're all in the top 10 countries as well. So there's a bit of tax dodging going on with these numbers. Well, what a surprise. So, yeah, the question is, if we we had more companies investing, would we be able to export more? That is the the question, because we've got a pretty sick trade balance lately in the UK, although, you know, the US has got a pretty sick trade balance as well, trade deficit, uh, and they seem to be doing sort of okay comparatively. But well, is that is that the end game? I mean, that's what the, the question to ask really today, how right. important is the balance of trade and how important is it we get foreign money to help that along? So we'll look at that. But speaking of investing, you might be wondering what to do with the money that you've got of right course, now. vast, vast amounts. What uh, should I do All that money. Well, you know, do you have it stashed in a pension or do you have it tied up in shares or is it in property? Maybe your portfolio, Roger, needs a good looking at and sorting out. For example, are you sure you've thought hard enough about retirement or, uh, you know, how your estate is going to get passed on when you shuttle off this mortal coil? All those questions, good questions. You probably need to be talking to the people at Wigmore Associates because they can help with all of that. They're a boutique wealth management firm and we're talking about your wealth when they say they're a wealth management firm and how you can have more of it and they've been looking after people this way for over 30 years so give them a call on 0207 224 that's 0207 224 or visit wigmore-associates.co.uk and they'll sort you out and please tell them that phil and roger sent you because they make this podcast possible they do indeed now let's look at foreign trade and is britain lagging and how do we improve the situation? Martin Wolf is Chief Economics Commentator at the FT. He joins yeah, us. Well, Martin, just a, a thought to start with, really. Uh, is Britain, do you think, a more attractive place gradually now, coming out of the whole COVID period for foreign investment? Or does it still have so much hanging around its neck in terms of, of internal issues, tax issues, etc., that people really don't see it as a place to put their money? I think it's a question of what they're trying to invest for. And, uh, and who is trying to invest. And it's very important to distinguish inflows of portfolio capital um, uh, from, and from genuine greenfield investment from FDI, which takes the form of purchase of existing companies. And these are obviously different things. I haven't looked at these in great detail, but I w- would say that a plus for buying um, um, British equities um, and possibly British companies is that they're very cheap. The, the The British equity market has been become really cheap relative to many others after a long period of underperformance. So anybody who is looking for uh, a possible upside on investment in already established businesses um, which will sort of generate decent returns over time. This would seem, I would have thought, a quite an attractive stock market and to buy into. But buying into greenfield investments, particularly ones which are companies that are foreign-oriented and particularly towards the European market would be a very different matter, I think. Yeah, so buying shares in existing companies uh, in the UK, I mean, rather than somebody buying it locally, I mean, does that make any difference at all to the UK economy? Are we any better off if they do that? I would have said not. I mean, the main reason I think that over the last 20 years, um, the market has been so weak 
is there aren't any British investors anymore. I mean, the most important investors historically have tended to be pension funds, and the pension funds uh, have essentially in very large measure disinvested from British equities uh, above all the defined benefit pension plans, which are closing down. So that there haven't been local buyers, and that has made the market um, cheap. It means, of course, that many British companies want to float abroad. You can see this very, very clearly, um, particularly new dynamic companies want to float abroad. Uh, but uh, it means that uh, some some asset managers, the British um, British stocks are relatively cheap um, because there aren't local investors to compete with, and local investors always matter in every market. So Revolut's a great example of that, isn't it? So one of these new financial companies that's uh, here in the UK, the owner of Revolut uh, or the CEO is there saying, "Well, you know, we yeah, we, we're going to list in the United States. We don't want to. We don't want to list in in the UK. The, the environment is far more attractive." Over there, which is a shame, because well, then that means yes. that, that means yeah. that's capital flowing out of out of the country ultimately. The same with ARM, of course, in a similar similar yes, situation. Indeed, in, I mean, if you're in the tech business, if you've got a dynamic new business, you're likely to get much better valuations and a much more knowledgeable investor base too in the United States. Uh, of course, much bigger and more liquid markets. Uh, the British markets. Uh, you know their performance has been dire over twenty years, and it just doesn't look a very attractive place to pl- to fund yourself. That I mean, I've just been reading a report which notes that the valuation relative to GDP of British stocks has have fallen from the second or third in the world to about the tenth over this period. So it doesn't look at all likely that there'll be. Um, you know, there'll be much more than bottom fishing. That's what I tend to think is going on. And that, that particularly, I guess, where I mean, the, the dynamic area at the moment, it seems, is investment in green technology. And of course, the US Inflation Reduction Act, drawing huge amounts of investment to them, means that there's far less, of course, for, for Britain to get. Well, that's clearly true. Um, and obviously, the UK can't win a subsidy war with the US. And and it can't offer opportunities of investment at scale that the U.S. can. So businesses that really want to operate in a very large way are bound to be interested in investing in, in the U.S. And after that, the EU market as a whole, though nothing like as dynamic as uh, as the U.S. is, is still very large for green technology because they've got a pretty big push in this. Britain on its own, first, it doesn't have a really deep commitment to this energy transition anyway. There's very little government money going into it. And in any case, the market is small. I mean, they're just reality. So, yes, of course, businesses going to operate in this area will want to list elsewhere and they will want to operate elsewhere. I mean, that's just inevitable. So the UK has become an attractive place for investment for financial services. So 76 financial service projects attracted uh, foreign direct investment last year, which is up 17% on the previous year. More than a quarter of all investment in uh, finance service projects in Europe are in the UK. So is that a good thing? I mean, presumably that means more jobs for more people in the city. Wow. Uh, but is that really helping the real economy? Is that something to boast about? Well, the statistics you give are very interesting. But, I mean, it, Britain remains uh, a country with a very strong comparative advantage in financial services. This is relatively unaffected by leaving the single market because so much of 
um, you know, the capital flows involved with finance are not actually directly affected, at least so far, by EU regulation. So we can, London is still quite clearly the financial capital of Europe. It's the second great financial centre of the world. Uh, there's a lot of financial skill. Um, there are a lot of people from all over the world working in this sector. So I'm not in the least surprised that this is the one area or one area in which uh, um, there are lots of innovations and um, and relatively large interest. I presume these some of these businesses will succeed and generate income, um, which is a very good thing. And I hope tax revenue and all the other things you want. I will be surprised if any of them turned out to be mass generators of uh, employment, uh, certainly not outside London. I'm not poo-pooing having a prosperous London. We need it. But of course, Britain has some very large regional problems, very large income distribution problems. And these investments, though they will make a contribution to the economy, are not going to solve any of those problems. We really like to have more manufacturing. Yeah, exactly. Maybe the horse has bolted on that. But I mean, is that you mentioned jobs? Uh, I mean, is that the key thing, do you think? Do we want foreign direct investment to get more uh, labor intensive industries that are going to employ more people? Is that the real benefit from getting foreign money into the country? Well, I wouldn't go that far, no, because actually the one area of the British economy which has been doing pretty well is employment or at least unemployment, if you like. Now, now the unemployment is really quite low. Employment is also somewhat low. Uh, we haven't recovered employment uh, levels or ratios to 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 um, to the labor the potential labor force um, uh, that uh, we others have done. It's not quite clear why that is. Some people think it's because of ill health as a result of COVID. It's, it's quite a big examination of this. But one would have to say, uh, the moment, it looks as though if we generate more employment, it tends to generate more immigration, which is not in itself a bad thing, but it doesn't generate um, vastly more employment for British people who are reasonably fully employed on, on the data. So what I think... You want FDI to do um, above all is to generate new and higher incomes, economic growth, productivity growth. The big problem we've had has not been in the labour market, and um, there are lots of footnotes to that which I've just indicated. But the big problem we've had since the financial crisis is that productivity growth has become so slow. Investment in the investment is incredibly low. We have the lowest investment rate of any major Western country. We have a chronic shortage of savings. Uh, so an inflow of foreign capital um, will be a help, one hopes, in if it boosts investment and boosts the supply of funds, which can be uh, used in the economy to make us better off. You, you mentioned the, the term. Com- thing. You mentioned the term comparative advantage before. So, and it is, you know, the, the Cardinalists would be saying, well, yes, you know, we want foreign investment so we can specialize in in what we're good at whatever that might be. Now, you'd hope uh, to improve that productivity and to create higher wages, it would be tech. But and, and we do get a bit of tech investment, but obviously most of that goes to the United States. We, we need to yeah, do something about it. Same problem as with, as with the green industry, where, where the money already is, is where it's going to, and the investment yeah. potential in the US is so much and, bigger. And we're putting money there as well ourselves, of course. So we need to get better at tech. That is the a key part of all of this, isn't it? Well, coming back to the point about 
you started with comparative advantage. One has to view comparative advantage as something that is dynamic, not static. Now, of course, we have existing comparative advantages in finance. Uh, we have potential, I think, because there are some important assets we have in tech and uh, life sciences. Um, and we certainly want to build on those. That, uh, that involves doing quite a lot of things, um, investing in science and technology, opening uh, up the economy to skilled people from abroad, um, I think recreating our links with European uh, Europeans on science and technology, uh, um, promoting the venture capital industry, which will certainly include uh, foreign funds, providing opportunities for them, trying to create places, um, industrial parks and so forth around universities around the country to invest in tech. Uh, I think that you have to start thinking about a whole new ecosystem to create a more dynamic tech sector. Um, I think, the, to, be, to its credit, this government has thought a bit about this. One of Dominic Cummings' ideas, in fact, was to create a sort of British equivalent of DARPA. But it's been a bit fitful. It's not a big commitment. And in life sciences, again, it's pretty obvious, as was shown over the vaccines, there's lots of potential in Britain, but it will take, I think, and well, I'm not generally an industrial policy person. I think in these areas of potential future comparative advantage, government has to play a role. And it certainly did, if you look back at it, in the history of the US tech industry. Well, as I was going to say, I mean, we've kind of got the, the symptoms of the disease at the moment. What's the cause? Why are we in this incredibly bad position? I mean, we were relatively uh, ahead in terms of dealing with the effects of COVID at the beginning, at least. We, we seem to come out of all that relatively well. And yet, you know, as you say, the problem perhaps going back 20 years, we are in a very parlous state. Is it purely down to the way the government has handled this? What is the essential reason we are not attractive at the moment? Well, I think uh, that's a really big question. Uh, so um, I think we have a long-term uh, uh, problem, which became obvious with after the financial crisis, uh, and uh, we haven't done anything sensible to solve those problems. That's essentially what it's about. The long-term problem is that in terms of income generation, wealth generation and tax generation, which is very important for the public finances, uh, the financial sector became a dominant sector in the UK in prior to the financial crisis. And we thought that was a durable, a, a solid source, not just of comparative advantage, which it clearly was, but in terms of income growth uh, for our country. And uh, the financial crisis basically ended that. It, it has never recovered the, the growth path before. We also lost productivity growth because the oil sector, energy, the oil and gas sector just died out. And it turned out when this happened, we didn't have much else going on that was really powerful. Uh, we had ignored that in the happy years, uh, 20 years or so before, before the financial crisis. And we've never succeeded in replacing this. Over and above that, we made, I think, two pretty big mistakes. I regard leaving Brexit as a pretty big mistake because it 
damaged inevitably a significant part of our industry, which was the new industry, which Michael Heseltine had created, oriented towards the European uh, market. And then we obviously, um, in for reasons we don't fully understand, have been harder hit by the longer run consequences, what you might call long economic COVID of COVID than most other countries, even other European countries, and particularly in the labor market. So if you add all these things together, you have an underlying weak productivity growth performance, which became obvious when the financial sector stopped doing the wonderful things it was doing before 2007, which turned out to be essentially unsustainable. A lot of it was a bubble that we thought was durable and wasn't. And we haven't actually had a consistent government policy to recognize this and do something about this. And if you look at the history of this conservative government, well, it's became a sort of civil war, didn't mm, it? Absolutely, you can say that for sure. So you mentioned Brexit as well. Since Brexit, we've actually attracted a lot more foreign acquisitions of UK companies uh, since uh, you know since where we were before 2016. So I think we had uh, 789 acquisitions uh, last year, I think, and normally in normal year, this is companies of over a million, uh, normally before 2016, it was about 200 or so. Uh, but I think to your point earlier, a lot of that is probably, it was just good value. It's not necessarily helping the economy a great deal. They're just buying them because they're cheap. That's my hypothesis. I must stress, I haven't done the detailed work looking at all these companies, but I don't see a lot of really dynamic, fast growth companies around. I mean, the you know, the sort of companies that are transforming the world. Uh, and so, and when I look at the, the FTSE, uh, at least, um, I mean, these are old, old companies. They generate some of them really good returns. I mean, you know, BP is a great profit maker when you've got an energy price boom, but it's not going to transform the world anymore, is it? Uh, now, obviously, this is not one of those acquisitions, but the point is, I would have thought people are looking for value. That's a perfectly reasonable thing to do, but it isn't saying that they think, the economy is uh, dynamic. You can get lots of value in a stagnant economy if you've got a, a very strong market position. Say you're a great retailer in a what is still a pretty prosperous country. After all, this is a G7 country and you can earn very good returns. Warren Buffett would approve. Uh, and Buffett, like investors, uh, can do very well. And he has done man magnificently over the years in buying into companies just like that. So you you talked a little bit about how maybe the government does need to step in and then almost needs to be seed money, I guess, for some of these industries that we want to see growth in, which, of course, is the exact opposite of, you know, what what Trump was doing. Uh, he was doing the opposite of foreign investment, wasn't he? I mean, he basically was growing protectionism with tariffs and import bans to try and protect and build domestic jobs. So was Trump wrong or is there a case sometimes for protectionism in, in some industries? I mean, like, look at Japan. I mean, they built the car industry by, in the early days by protecting it before they sort of opened it up to, to international markets. I think my answer to that, again, a huge question, is there is a case for infant industry protection. We've known that since the early 19th century, Alexander Hamilton was probably the, the most important proponent of this view, but they have to be genuine infants. That is to say, businesses that aren't, don't exist now, uh, which have really good long-term potential. And I think the characteristic of Japanese and Korean 
uh, protection was they were perfect examples of of that. Similarly, German protection in the late 19th century had some of those characteristics. Unfortunately, Trump's protection uh, and historically a lot of British protection, rather less so as long as you were in the EU, but in the Trump protection was the exact inverse. It was protecting senile industries. And nobody can possibly believe that the future of the United States lies in a bigger steel industry or a bigger yeah. aluminium industry. Pennsylvania coal. Yeah, exactly. It was, it was you know, my, it's the great danger with protection with somebody in charge who hasn't got any real sense of the underlying economics of growth and dynamism is the, what I think you don't pick winners, the losers pick you. And the and I think Trump's protection is was essentially the losers picking him, multiplied by the fact it was late, related to a completely incoherent war over the bilateral trade balance with China. And if you look back on it, I think people will conclude. I think indeed it's obvious. I've written about it that the Trump um, protection achieved nothing except distorting trade. Now I think the Biden approach is much closer to what Hamilton was recommending. You subsidize new industries, not things that exist. It's better than protection because you subsidize them worldwide so they can also exploit global opportunities. And if you're going to do infant industry policy, you, that's the sort of policy you want to pursue. But for Britain, with our very limited resources, we have to focus on the areas where we think we have really good long-term potential. And I've indicated some. Right, but uh, but so uh, maybe you can give those to us again, just in case we miss it. Then, but, but because it is a question of picking picking winners, isn't it? And that gets back to the danger of you know how can we expect the government to realistically pick winners because they winning. I think you can pick, and the governments have done so in the past. Winning sectors, you mustn't pick winning firms. That's not the government's view. You, I think the government should be. Well, I, I think one of the most important things is to reform our pensions. So they start investing in equities again. And there was a very good paper uh, just out from the Tony Blair Institute on that. Don't get to write about. But the, the, the key point is you need funding to be directed towards where potential is. Uh, you can often use government contracts, and that was very important, the way they designed contracts to generate uh, a lot of our wind power, which has helped us so much through this crisis. And everybody could see there was potentially wind power for the UK. But you need some seed funding to get the initial investment going. Uh, um, but you don't need to pick the individual companies who will succeed. You have no idea who they are. You just generate the conditions in which lots of new companies will emerge and you help get the help getting the funding uh, to support them in the initial period but one of those conditions martin has to be uh, a, a good financial environment, a good tax environment, for example. And one of the things that the current government's been hit over the head by its own side about is the tax environment. And it doesn't encourage the kind of investment that you're talking about. How big a problem do you think that is? Well, I'm not convinced that the uh, that they there was a very sensible to raise corporation tax again. But I have to say, we've gone through a number of different headline corporation tax rates over the last eight years. They don't seem to be very highly correlated with, at all with inward flows or, in, or even investment. But I would favor full expensing of investment, 
and, and being able to carry forward investment into the future. So investment gets tax credits. Uh, uh, I'm not so worried about the headline uh, rate. The top rates in Britain are not of tax aren't particularly disadvantageous compared with other countries, including actually the US. So uh, if you look at average tax rates, the UK is not a high tax country by Western standards, a little bit more than the US, below most of continental Europe, which many of the countries there being significantly richer than us, like Denmark or Germany. So I, d I think that the I, I write this about this in my recent book. There are bits of the tax system which are a genuine mess. There's absolutely no doubt about it. Uh, but I think there are bigger issues here. I mean, one of them is very, very difficult to, to generate new um, uh, businesses if you can't house your workers at reasonable price. And in many parts of our country, housing is just staggeringly expensive and people can't move there and live there. Yeah, yeah. Well, that's been a problem for decades, hasn't it? Ever since it's the, got much worse. Ever since the get on your bike for, you know, telling people up north, get on your bike and get, go to where the jobs are. Uh, no one could afford a house in the south. But to go, to finally, our balance of trade is pretty sick. It's 108 billion in deficit uh, in, in 2022. So if we attract more investment, Maybe that'll help that situation. But there again, if we're saying one of the industries that we think, you know, there's there's growth potential is in renewable energy, that's really servicing the domestic market. That's not really helping our our balance of trade. So how important is is getting that balance of trade into less of a deficit or doesn't it really is too much made of that? Does it not really matter that much so long as, you know, you've got GDP growth and you've got people uh, earning a decent yeah, wage? Into well, the, my answer to that is um, it's not an objective in itself, but it can be a symptom. Uh, and it can be a symptom of two things. The main symptom it is, uh, 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 is that the colossal shortage of domestic savings. We have a company the lowest domestic savings rate of any significant economy. So if we want to finance even our rather low investment rate, we have to rely on foreign capital. And it's far better to get that foreign capital, that foreign, which is what the, the, the net capital inflow is simply the, the inverse of the trade deficit you, you described. So another way of saying it is not that we are doing very badly on trade, is that we're doing very well on capital inflow because people do still want to invest or at least finance things in Britain. And I think that's far, far better than the alternative. The second way in which it would be important is, of course, tradable goods and services are a very important source of income for a society because you're dealing with the whole world market. And that gives you the advantage of exploiting economies of scale and all the rest of it. So the fact that our export performance has become rather weak is, I think, worrying not because of the balance of trade, but because of what it's telling us about longer run competitiveness and potential productivity growth. So I have a view, as I said, that the trade deficit is a symptom of important things, but it's not a problem and it's not a policy objective. Uh, it's not necessarily a problem. It's not a policy objective. And Trump's view on that was simply economically primitive. Well, it does get down to, again, comparative advantage, doesn't it? That beyond finance, what do we stand for? You know, what is it that Britain exports? And, uh, you know, it used to be uh, energy and fuels. Now it's services. 
fundamental. Well, we used to have, we still have, I mean, if you look at our exports, it's still very, very heavily dependent on manufacturing because it's the most tradable activity. It's been pretty stagnant, but it remains pretty important. I mean, things that we did start exporting a lot of cars once uh, um, that we got these transplants from Japan and Germany and so forth. We export uh, be, um, British aerospace, uh, exports lots of military equipment and, of course, wings for Airbus and so forth. I mean, we have a lot still, though much smaller, a substantial invested base in uh, in manufacturing, Rolls-Royce and so forth. We don't want these companies simply to die. Uh, they generate income, uh, skilled jobs and so forth. We have run them down, but I think we do need to think about the future of manufacturing as well, where it is already established. But the new things will surely be in the sectors we've been discussing. So, yeah, and electric cars obviously present a well, big batteries. opportunity. But, yeah. Yeah, we're not going to be able to compete in batteries, and I think the chances that we will compete in electric cars are very, very poor. But actually, by the way, that is, of course, a crisis for the whole European car industry. That's a much bigger story. Well, you've got to have uh, domestic growth, and to get domestic growth, because that's often the way, isn't it? You build up your domestic consumption, and then you can start exporting. We can't build up domestic consumption because we haven't got enough points for people to charge. So we haven't built the infrastructures to support yeah. the industry. It gets back again. I think that the British market is going to be t- too small to set up a new internationally competitive electric car industry. And here, the key competitor, and, and I think it's going to be an overwhelming competitor unless there's radical protection, will be China. Martin, do you? They are transforming the global car industry. Mm. Martin, do you detect? I mean, bringing all this together as we come to the end of this, do you detect that the government, as it is at the moment, you know, we're into what they call, you know, the the dullness deficit, the idea, the dullness dividend, because the sense that we do now have at least stability. Do we have stability in economic policy, which is likely to move towards all these things we're talking about? Do you detect that? I think if you're optimistic, we the leaders of the two main parties are fairly sensible people and their, their disagreements are real, but there is a reasonable possibility of stability, relative stability in policy and, uh, and even some di- agreement on the sorts of things we've now been t- talking about. Um, whether that will be enough given what I consider the very deep-seated weaknesses of the British economy that have been revealed over the last 15 years, that I think is a very good question. But at the very least, I think we have got a decent chance of modest but stable growth, maybe 1.5% a year, maybe somewhere between 1 and 1.5% a year, which is a great deal better than nothing. We clearly continue to be attractive to high-quality immigrants from around the world, so we should be getting lots of skilled people. We continue to have very strong resources in our university sector, research and so forth. So I think good, stable, reasonably balanced growth is plausible, and that will give the government some resources to deal with the social problems. And with luck, things will, as it were, calm down again, and that will be fine. Right. Good to hear, Martin. I love the idea as well. We've got sensible politicians on oh, both well. sides of politics. There's well, a- everything <laughs> is relative, but if you think of the last election between Boris Johnson and Jeremy Corbyn, surely Sunak yeah. and Starmer are an improvement. Anything's an improvement, absolutely. <laughs> All right. yeah. Always a joy to talk to you, Martin. Hopefully we'll get you on again soon. Thanks for your time. Thanks a lot. Bye.
He's a he's a sharp mind, isn't he? I oh think. yes, mm, oh cool. yes. So yeah, I enjoy having Martin on the podcast. Uh, so and, and with a little bit of optimism there. Yeah, I know. think so as well. Yeah, yes, yeah, yes. A few, yeah. A few green shoots in the desert. Let's, yeah, uh, let's we think just of that. we've just got to. I think as a country, we've just got to you know be able to publicise what it is that we're good at, and if yes. it's and if it's green energy and tech, we've just got to get in on that tech game. We've got yes. to sort of take a slice of it. Obviously, a lot of it goes to America. Yes, but we've got to say, well, there's educated people here, and uh, you know, Britain is. You know, yeah. as, and obviously we talked about pharmaceuticals as well. We're nuts if we can't benefit from what the world has been through over the last few in, years in various well. ways. But what it has done, of course, is make us all quite depressed about the uh, the situation. Mm. Um, not unreasonably, <laughs> when you're faced with enormous mortgage payments or whatever it is. And actually, that rather leads us into what we're going to be talking about next week, which is mental health, because mm. uh, there has been what well, appears to be an almost another epidemic of people discovering that they have conditions that they didn't know. ADHD being one of the key ones, people getting diagnosed with it. Are Is we... that it? Are people just getting diagnosed more? Are we just seeing more well, exactly. of stuff like that because it went undiagnosed Or before? is it that modern life has made us, mm. you know, has given us conditions we didn't expect? Or are people being misdiagnosed? Some people say, well, you know, you're just putting a medicalised name on something that people have always had and got away with and coped yeah. with. And if you can make money out of diagnosing people, well, then people will. And you know, indeed medicalising it and then treating mm. it with pharmaceuticals. I mean, all kinds of things mm. that come up. So we thought we'd look into the reality of this. How, how big a problem is it? Is it a real problem? What's causing it? And uh, and what we can do about it? So yeah. we're going to be... And we'll try not to get too depressed about it. Well, no, uh, indeed. It's, uh, it will be an uplifting ex- uh, exercise an next week, as always. Yes, uh, always. Uh, that's it for the Wide Care for this week. Uh, we'll join us then for that. Uh, we are brought to you by Wigmore Associates. They of make course. it possible. And uh, we'll see you next week. Thanks for listening. Bye. The Wide Curve.